Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Welcome to part four of our four-part series, 2022's Greatest Hits of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. The four parts include the top 10 most listened to segments last year. In part one, we talked about tomatoes, topics such as choosing the easiest to grow varieties, pruning young tomato plants, the best tomatoes for containers, and a lot more. You can listen to all of it in episode 248. Then in part two of The Greatest Hits, it's episode 249, we talked with Grow Now author Emily Murphy. She talked about a way to build your soil without having to purchase bags or yards of potting mix. It's called lasagna gardening. Also in part two, we visited with master gardener Pam Bone. She had lots of good tips for growing raspberries, blackberries, and boysenberries. In episode 250, part three, it was a Debbie Flower extravaganza. Our favorite retired college horticultural professor discussed how to reuse old potting soil, tips for reducing water use in the yard, and a checklist for starting your first garden or a new garden. That was part three of our greatest hits of 2022. Today, in part four, well, you know, just like every good rock group has a live album, we had a live podcast last spring at the Folsom California Garden Club. And you enjoyed it so much, it's not only one of the most listened to podcasts of 2022, we enjoyed it so much that Debbie Flower and I will be hitting the road again this winter and spring with more live episodes from garden clubs throughout the area, and we'll be bantering on and on about various garden topics, as well as answering your garden questions live. No pressure. No pressure. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. Let's go. Well, good morning. I'm glad you could all be here. I'm glad I'm here. It's nice to see people. <laughs> this is nice. I appreciate this very much to uh, get out in the open and, and talk to you and and talk gardening. My heavens, it's uh, a beautiful day. It's it's dry, which is unfortunate. And we will have a interesting wandering talk. There'll be a lot of scenic bypasses today, and a lot of it's going to be based on your questions. And your questions are more than welcome. I would ask you, though, we are recording this for the podcast, for the Garden Basics podcast. So if you would want to ask a question, there is a microphone over there by that door. If you'd go over there to ask your question, uh, all of the world would appreciate it, including my 15 listeners in Bulgaria. <laughs> there, there's something like 350,000 listeners to the podcast right now around the world, most of them in English-speaking countries, and actually most of them right here in Sacramento. It, it, it's just a continuation of the old radio shows, and I'm uh, glad you still keep me fondly in your hearts. Now, as you can tell, not only am I taller and younger and thinner uh, on the radio, <laughs> I'm taller, younger, and thinner on podcasts too. 
and we'll um, uh, continue in this realm. By the way, I know, and I, I get this question a lot, what's a podcast? If you have a smartphone, you have podcasts. And there's a lot of ways. Afterwards, if I'm still around, you can hand me your smartphone, and I will I will find the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast for you if if, if that is necessary. Or again, ask your grandchildren. That always helps too. <laughs> Jim Kirstein is here. Jim is one heck of a bicyclist, and he is an amazing guy. He is uh, responsible for building and designing and implementing and pushing for the 40-some-odd miles of bike trails that exist in the city of Folsom. And yesterday, I did a bike ride with Jim. We did a 62-mile bike ride. Well, <laughs> I'm sure Jim and I are thinking the same thing. Yeah, that's uh, typical. <laughs> that's that's what we do. We like to ride bikes. So on this bike ride, I said, hey, Jim, did you know I'm speaking at the Folsom Garden Club tomorrow? He goes, oh, okay, well, i I, I got to do a run, and <laughs> I, I don't think I'm, I'm going to get there in time. And then I said, well, Debbie Flower is going to be with me. And he goes, okay, I'll be there. So we're here for Debbie. <laughs> That's the first I knew about that. Yes. But, uh, Jim, thanks for coming here and everybody else. Thank you. And thank you, too, for listening to the radio show all those years as well. I appreciate it. All right. So, again, if you have questions later on, we'll, we'll jam her here for about 20, 30 minutes, and then we'll uh, get to your questions. There's so many things I want to talk about. All right. Mm -hmm. And can I have that book right there? Thank you. I don't know why you have this book here, but it is one of my favorite books. It's called Plant Propagation. It's by Alan Toogood. It, it now has a different look to it, and it might have a different publisher, but it is an excellent book on how to produce plants from plants you already have. Alan Toogood is a really good... Uh, author of plant propagation books. The first plant propagation book I got in the 70s, I got for Christmas from my dad, and it was written by Alan Toogood. Had no photographs, drawings only. Uh, <laughs> very clear. If you're into buying used books, anything by Alan Toogood about propagation is worth its weight. Is that all you had to say? That's all I had to say. What are some of your favorite garden books? Books. Yeah. Wow, I have whole shelves of books. And and I don't go to them as often as I used to. I use that thing called Google. But there aren't always, Google isn't always uh, sufficient. I have an old plant propagation book by Hartman and Kester. Yes, yes. Hartman and Kester. Hartman and Kester. And I was gra uh, grafting. I have two apple trees, um, North Pole and I forget the other one, but they're the columnar ones. I just have to grow things to grow things. I, it, it, they produce horrible apples. Don't get them for apples. But they grow straight up. And so, uh, one, the scion died. I just had the root stock. Explain other, what a scion is. Uh, scion is the desirable cultivar that you want to get off of that fruit tree. And then that's attached often in ornamental trees as well, often to what's called root stock. The root stock is provides the roots, provides the the uh, basics for the plant. And it, the rootstock is chosen for a couple of reasons. It's chosen to adapt to the location where you are, soil, insects, uh, pH, water, and also it influences the tree. So the reason this North Pole, and I can't remember the other one, uh, Cyan's name, are very tall and skinny has a lot to do with that rootstock. 
but I had lost the cyan on one, and the other one was sending up all these uh, suckers from the rootstock. So a sucker is just a, a growth off of the off of the roots. So I ordered uh, cyans from a company I found online, and they were very nice. They mailed them to me. They wished me luck in my endeavor, and and I wanted to attach them. And so I went to my Hartman and Kester and looked it up. I have a lot of propagation books. I have a, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of stuff online, but I wanted to know what the grandpas in the uh, propagation world had to say. And then recently, I propagated my peach. Uh, it was a frost peach. Somebody gave it to me. Don't grow it. <laughs> the reason people buy the frost peach is because it does not get peach leaf curl. If you have a peach with peach leaf curl, you know what I'm talking about when the leaves get sort of bubbly up and turn colors. And sure enough, did not get peach leaf curl. But the peaches were horrible. They were very mealy. <laughs> so I had some arborists come through and I had them chop it down. I said, but leave me enough above ground that I can graft it. So now I have about a six-inch trunk and I need to graft to that. Again, I pull out my Hartman and Kester and look at, there's about three or four ways that I could uh, take scions, which I got from a girlfriend's property. She does have peach leaf curl. So I first soaked them in, this is all off, this part's just seat of the pants. I have some old micro cop. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yay, 49% <laughs> copper. You can't it, find it can't anymore. can't buy it anymore. And the label had fallen off, but I knew what it was from having carried it around from house to house. And one of Fred's loyal listeners had it as well and took a picture of the label. And so I now have a picture of the label, so I know quantity. And so I mixed up a spray quantity, and then I soaked these... Uh, pieces of cyan, which is just previous year's wood. You don't want to call it one-year-old wood. It's what grew last year. That's what you use to graft onto something else. And I wanted to see the different ways. And I tried, I put about six all around the edge of this uh, peach stump that I have and using different methods that I found in my Hartman and Kester. So that was fun. Thank you for coming to our fruit tree talk. Have a great day. <laughs> The apples took the peach I just did about a month ago, so we'll see if that takes. One more garden book note. Pruning and training. It is indispensable if you want to know how and when to prune your plants. Just about any plant you could think of growing is in that book. Pruning and Training is the name of it. And those are two books that are definitely on my shelf within reach of my seat. That and the Sunset Western Garden book, which is unfortunately hasn't been updated in, what, seven or eight years. But, you know, we sit at his studio, which is in his house, and one of us asks a question, and we say, I don't know, I don't know. He goes for the bookshelf. I go for the computer. Guess who gets there first? Yeah, but how accurate is it? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. you got to know your sites. That's yeah, very, very true. And if you do a lot of Internet searches, and we do a lot of Internet searches uh, on garden topics, it, it's always helpful to put in something that might lead you to accurate information. And one of those little suffixes to put in is .edu. So... If you typed in aphidcontroltips.edu, it would send you on that first page of results to some university-backed research on controlling aphids. So I'd recommend that any internet search that you do, .edu. I'm sorry, you're hot. You want me to turn the air conditioning on? <laughs> what about this little thing? Everybody gets one of those. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it, 
Aphid control made me think of it. Well, you know what's nice about this pamphlet, too? The 10 Most Wanted. It talks about beneficial insects. And it has all the life stages of the insect. Because the baby good guys don't look anything like the adults. A ladybug teenager looks like an alligator in a San Francisco Giants warm-up jacket. And you would, might mistake it for a bad guy and, and start killing it. You don't want to do that. Lacewing larvae are very mysterious looking. And this brochure can help you out a lot so that you can recognize uh, the good guys from the bad guys. And I think this is the first thing you always say. She always says, Fred... Always identify the pest first. Yeah, that's very true. That's very, very true. Know the pest. Yeah. As you're preparing your garden for spring, you're likely to come across some of these or maybe the larvae of some of these uh, in the soil, like the soldier beetle, which is inside the front page. And you see that there's a soldier beetle larva. Larva can be difficult to tell apart uh, if you're digging in the soil and come across it. So there are some basic things that you want to look for. One is, does it have legs? Because if it doesn't have legs, I have this cheat sheet I brought from University of Kentucky about identifying the larva. And the thing you number one thing you look for is whether they have legs. Zero legs tend to be a fly of some sort. There are lots of different crane flies are out right now. Soldier flies come from your compost pile. They don't have any legs. They just sort of wiggle around on the ground. If they have uh, six legs, three at the front and three further down, that's moths and butterflies in general. And then the other things like uh, lacewing, I would like to point out she didn't finish the New York Times crossword <laughs> puzzle on the back. I use everything I can as often as I can, so okay. I reuse paper. <laughs> can I ask you about one bug in particular that people might be finding right now if they're digging in their garden? Sure. And those are those little white C-shaped grubs. Oh, okay. And you go, oh, what's this? Good guy, bad guy? Generally bad guy. What do you do with them? So Somebody has chickens here. Yeah, yeah chickens. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Give them to her. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I throw mine out for the birds. Just toss right. it over my shoulder. Right. Chickens. Uh, paint thinner. Paint thinner. Well, paint thinner. okay. If Whoa. you like to see them suffer, yeah, okay. Uh, soapy water will will kill things. Stir fry. Stir. Well, ultimately, yeah. that's better for the earth, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't have a... I have... I have a kitchen waste compost. It's called the green uh, uh, tower. And it's, you dig a hole in the ground and you put it in a basket. It's kind of like a laundry basket, a plastic basket. And it's probably a foot deep and 18 inches across. And then there's a, it's green cone composter. Then there's a green cone on top and there's a lid at the top. So it's tall enough that the raccoons can't get into it. And it's narrows at the top so things can't climb into it. And that's where all my kitchen waste goes. So that's where everybody's You have raccoons living. in your kitchen? <laughs> they try to get in, but yeah. the cats chase them away. Hey, you know, you're one step uh, closer to uh, obeying the new Folsom law. I saw that in the Folsom News Flyer yesterday. The good news is the city of Folsom will start picking up your green waste every week beginning July 1st. That's Ooh, great news. That is good news. The bad news is you have to be adding more stuff to it. Your kitchen waste. And uh, it's it's a long list of what now will be going into your uh, green waste trash can. So then will Folsom be composting like I'm composting in my green cone composter? They, I think, is, are trying to eliminate methane. 
okay. in, in the in the uh, landfills. Mm-hmm. So I think by putting food waste and food and waste paper waste products elsewhere together, yeah, they, they're going to be composting it. Okay, right. good. Let them deal with the raccoons and the possum and the skunks. After my father was a shellfish farmer, he became a professor of garbage, and I worked with him. <laughs> True. I worked with him. I walked on many landfills. I measured methane. I measured oxygen. We had these pogo sticks. It was uh, it was interesting, but it made me very depressed about the human condition. Let, let's uh, spend a couple of minutes talking about spring garden chores so we don't get hated out of here. Okay. Because uh, the, uh, they, th- they, th- they think we're, we came to talk about that. What did you do this week? That's a good garden? question. Oh, man, I, I started onion seeds for green onions, mm-hmm. uh, bunching onions. You can grow onions year-round here if all you want are the green onions. And now I'm growing it as a trap crop. What am I trying to trap? I'm trying to keep my wife away from my bunching onions and my bulbing onions because she has a habit of going out for dinner of picking green onions and snipping off the stalks of my Stockton Reds. Don't touch my Stockton Reds. They haven't formed bulbs yet. So I'm planting for her herself her own green onion garden. So did you plant seeds? I did plant seeds. And did you plant them in containers or directly into the garden bed? I didn't want to hassle with the slugs and the snails, so I planted them in containers, starting them in the greenhouse. And when they get up to a a good size, maybe three or four inches, I will transplant them out into the sunniest bed I have. Okay. Yeah, I planted seeds as well. I was gone for most of February and um, part of January, so I didn't get my seeds started as early as I wanted. But yesterday, I started tomatoes and and some or- some flowers, and I collect seeds. I have <laughs> wherever I go, if there's seeds on the plant, I take them and bring them home and look them up, and then figure out how I'm going to grow them. So some weird stuff as well. Jojoba uh, was one, and uh, mesquite trees another. I'm anticipating that our climate will get warmer and drier, and we need to look at species that will survive that. I have some creosote bush seeds that I haven't yet figured out how to germinate. I think I have to scarify them. That means scar, scar the seeds so that the water can get in. As opposed to stratify. Stratify, yes, means to... Refrigerate. Give them a winter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. That brings up a very good point about a spring garden chore that you all should be doing to preserve more soil moisture, because... Who knows where the next step in in water restrictions is going to be. Probably going from two days a week to one day a week would be my guess. But you can train your soil to retain more water, so it will be happy with one irrigation a week, maybe even less. And that's by a combination of adding compost to your soil and then mulching the top with several inches of an organic mulch. What are some of your favorite mulches? Well, I, I chased down arborists. I woke up one morning and heard a saw. Okay, that's a saw. Heard it again. Yeah, that's a chainsaw. Then I heard the chipper go. Jumped out of bed, made myself presentable, got in the car, and drove around the neighborhood till I found the arborist and said, can I have those chips? And I have a place in my yard where they're piled. I have a pile right now, and I move them around. And I've done this for many years. There are certain plants I cannot grow because my soil is so water retentive. So that's something to consider. She came to brag. (laughs) Well, and I I live in Fair Oaks. Uh, And I lost some things, too. It's called Phytophthora. It's a disease that builds up when moisture 
It's a disease in the soil that enters the plant when moisture is around, like, the trunk of the plant. And I lost some uh, California um, wax myrtles <coughs> to Phytophthora because of my mulching practice. Um, mounds would help that if you have things that you want to. I have a ceanothus, but it's on a mound, so it doesn't get the mulch around it. So it's not that... You have to think a little bit differently. But I spread it every year. And weeding, take those weeds out, take those things out that are sucking up the water. Did a lot of that this weekend. And then put the mulch down. If you are a pre-emergent user, this month is the month to use, to to apply the spring pre-emergent. I would put that on first and then the mulch on top of it. Remember, though, that if you apply a pre-emergent, you cannot disturb the soil afterwards. You don't want to break up that invisible protective shield. So have your bed ready to go and then put down your pre-emergent. Would you plant before adding a pre-emergent? Yeah, if I'm going to plant, I'm going to plant But it would have to be plants. It couldn't be seed because the pre-emergent would stop the seed. Right, right, right. So it has to be plants. And if you, I, I find it, a, I consider it a compliment when something desirable shows up on its own somewhere else in my yard. That won't happen if you use a chemical pre-emergent. Can they, we talk about zone extending? Oh, yeah. Can we plant our tomatoes out right now? Uh, maybe if you live in Phoenix or Tucson. Or you use a zone extender. Or, or you use a zone extender. We could It could be walls of water or a row cover, a hot cap, something like that. But you mentioned an interesting plant, the California wax myrtle. Yes. And up in Sea Ranch, oh, excuse me, the Sea Ranch, they have a very limited plant palette they can choose from that they're allowed to plant. Oh. And one of them is California wax myrtle. So I'm thinking, well, Coastal. It, it likes it by the coast. Mm-hmm. Are you having success with the California wax myrtle? You zone extender you? <laughs> they lived for, I, the first place I saw them was downtown at the EPA building in downtown Sacramento. So uh, they were not looking great. So I, of course, wanted to try and make them look better. And they did look very good for a number of years. Uh, my landscape has been in 10 or so years. And I had three of them, and I the last two just died this year. So for a while, yes, they did look good. Okay. It's sort of like coast redwood trees. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Please don't plant coast redwood trees here. They're, it, it hurts the plant too much. 15, 20 years down the line, they're going to get some sort of phytophthora or botryosphera. There's a lot of diseases that they're susceptible to when the humidity is so low. Coast redwoods get 50% of the moisture they need from a marine layer of fog. That's why those leaves on a coast redwood are designed the way they are. It's designed to accumulate fog, to form it into drops that will irrigate the plant and keep the plant happy. And that's not something we can imitate, even if we... Exactly. But how about instead of a coast redwood, you want that Christmas tree in your yard? How about something native to the Sierra foothills, like a deodar cedar? Mm-hmm. Better choice. Yep. And slower growing, too. Mm-hmm. And takes a different kind of irrigation. Sometimes uh, you see them planted together. The deodar cedar takes a uh, less frequent, much deeper irrigation, whereas the coast redwood takes more frequent. If you've ever had mulch around a coast redwood, you know that the roots are right up there in the, that mulch. Definitely look at the water requirements of any plant you want to put in. 
and try to be shying away from those really thirsty plants and going to ones where the water requirement is low to medium instead of medium to high. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a hard habit to break. But in the new reality, we're going to have less water to work with. So if you can keep your soil more moist, choose a plant palette that has more resistance to a lack of water. I mean, it's still getting water, but instead of getting water every week, it might survive easily on once-a-month irrigation. Most of my yard is irrigated once every two weeks. And it's all drip. Except for my Nomo Fesculon. Which is? Which irrigated. Is, oh, pop-up. Yeah, pop-up. Impact heads. Impact heads. No, not impact heads. Rotors. Okay, rotors. The, yes, the, yes M- rotors. the MP rotors. The MP rotors by Hunter are a great improvement over the old spray sprinklers or the god-awful impulse sprinklers. And it uses <laughs> a lot less water. It applies the water more slowly. The MP rotator heads put out little fingers of water mm-hmm. that go back and forth like that. It takes longer to irrigate, but you get less runoff. And that is so important in a city like Folsom where all the streets are not level. And none of the streets are straight either. You must not be from the east. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm used to grids. I'm from New York, and when I moved west, I couldn't believe that all the streets are straight. (laughs) But anyway. Uh, We mentioned pulling weeds. That's important. but about the irrigation every two weeks, that's the key, is that when you do irrigate, you irrigate a long time. Drip system, it's ours. With the uh, MP rotators, we do it two or three times in one day, and about 20 minutes till it starts to run off, then stop. And it's on a timer, of course, but this is how I figured it out. Water until it starts to run off, stop for the amount of time I just watered it, turn it back on, do it a second time, stop again, do it a third time. Put a lot of water down and then have a way to hold that water. It's the organic matter that holds the water in your soil. We did a great lab when I taught soils where we had clay clods, dry, and we had dry uh, organic soil clods. So it wasn't, I don't know if it was technically an organic soil on a soil analysis, but had soil with organic matter in it. We had these buckets uh, made from just a screen, a uh, uh, fairly large. I think of suet feeders. You know what a suet feeder is? Yeah, it has kind of big squares, metal, and they were shaped to hold these clods of soil. And then we had the students put them in water and just watch. The one that was just clay fell apart just like that. The one that was had organic matter in it stayed together and absorbed the water. Big difference. Huge difference. The easiest way to get that organic matter into your soil is to mulch regularly. It's a lot of work. But it, sometimes the arborists will hire their guys out to, to do it for you, to move it around. There's ways to get it done. Keep it. It does decompose. That's how it's getting into the soil. It's decomposing and it's washing into the soil or being moved into the soil by critters. And then you've got the, you can water a lot. You can get a lot of water held into that soil and then not have to water again for a long time. My neighbors love me. Because every fall, November, December, I knock on their door and I say, can I rake up your oak leaves for you? And they go, why, are you crazy? Yeah, go ahead, sure. Well, I I do. I I gather up all the oak leaves in the neighborhood. I put them in a metal trash can. Remember the metal 32-gallon trash cans? They're still for sale. 
and I will fill it halfway. Then I will stick my string trimmer down there and grind up the leaves. Or I'll take my mulching mower and run over those leaves, making them more fine particles. And that's my mulch. I will put that six, eight inches deep on top of all my raised beds and let it stay there all winter. Mm-hmm. It feeds the soil as it breaks down. It keeps the soil warmer. It does a whole host of good. Protects it protects the soil. When when rain comes down on bare soil, it's so powerful that it can cause soil compaction. So if you cover it with something, you don't get that soil compaction. And it's, it's building up better soil biology, too. Mm-hmm. All the little critters in the soil that are actually feeding your plants. I think this is one reality that more and more people are, are coming to see, is that you don't feed your plants. You feed the soil. And then the soil feeds the plant. There's a lot of uh, mycorrhizal activity down below the root level where these critters are taking the nutrients from the soil, converting it into a way that the plant roots can assimilate. And by encouraging more mycorrhizal soil activity, by feeding your soil on a slow, regular basis with something like a mulch, you're improving your soil 100%. Mm-hmm. And then if you go dig in it, if you've done the mulch and you dig in it and you turn it over and there's white stuff, that's the beneficial fungus. Don't freak out. That's good stuff. Yeah. You want to take questions? Fine with me. All right. You've heard me talk about the benefits of Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric container. Smart Pots are sold around the world and are proudly made 100% right here in the USA. Smart Pots is the oldest and still the best of all the fabric plant containers that you might find. Many of the imitators are selling cheaply made fabric pots that fall apart quickly. Not Smart Pots. There are satisfied Smart Pot owners who have been using the same Smart Pots for over a decade, actually approaching 20 years. When you choose Smart Pot fabric containers, you know you'll be having a superior growing experience with the best product on the market. And your plants will appreciate Smart Pots too. Because of the 1 million microscopic holes in Smart Pots, your soil will have better drainage and the roots will be healthier. They won't be going round and round on the outside of the soil ball like you see in so many plastic pots. The air pruning qualities of Smart Pots creates more branching of the roots, filling more of the usable soil in the Smart Pot. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you or to buy online, visit smartpots.com slash Fred. And don't forget that slash Fred part. On that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your Smart Pot order by using the coupon code FRED. Use it at checkout from the Smart Pot store. Visit smartpots.com slash FRED for more information about the complete line of Smart Pots lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers. And don't forget that special Farmer FRED 10% discount. Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. If you haven't shopped at your favorite independently owned nursery lately, well, you're missing out. Now arriving are Dave Wilson Nursery's excellent lineup of farmer's market favorites. It's great tasting and healthy fruit and nut varieties. They're already potted up and ready to be planted. We're talking about almonds, blackberries, blueberries, boysenberries, figs, grapes, hops, kiwi, mulberries, olives, pomegranates, and much more. 
Oh, you want more? Well, here you go. Your favorite Dave Wilson bare root deciduous fruit trees are arriving. Peaches, plums, cherries, including my favorite, the plum apricot cross, the pluot. Wholesale grower Dave Wilson Nursery has probably the best lineup of great tasting fruit and nut trees of any grower in the United States. Find out more at their website, DaveWilson.com. And while you're there, check out all the videos they have on how to plant and grow all their delicious varieties of fruit and nut trees. Plus, at DaveWilson.com, you're going to find the nursery nearest you that carries Dave Wilson's plants. Your harvest to better health begins at DaveWilson.com. You're listening to part four of our four-part series, 2022's Greatest Garden Hits on the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. It's a compilation of the segments that were most downloaded over the 12 months of 2022. And by the way, thank you for lending us your ears since April of 2020. By the end of 2023, we will have accumulated over 1 million downloads for this podcast. And coming up now, let's continue with Spring Garden Tips Live. It's Debbie Flower and I tackling your garden questions live at the Folsom Garden Club. We oh well, no, if you <laughs> go, have a question you have to use the microphone over there. Thank you very much. We'll see if it works. So I love this oak leaf idea. Um, does it work with other leaves? And you just go and knock on people's doors and offer to do. Well, it? usually I'll interrupt them while they're raking and say, "Hey, can I do that for you?" <laughs> and then you know I, I take it back and yeah. So other trees work? Yeah, I think as long as the leaves aren't diseased. Yeah, like a, a what's a nasty one? Like a liquid amber? Oh. <laughs> you don't want the the seeds that might. Yeah, come you don't with want that. the seed balls. Yeah, yeah. The, and, um, how about um, sycamore or a, sycamore uh, might have powdery mildew or anthracnose. Okay, so not but, all. <laughs> well, that comes up when we discuss diseases. There's a disease triangle. So you have to have three things in order to have a disease occur. You have to have the host. So if we're talking about a sycamore, you would have to have a sycamore on your property. The pathogen, which is the disease, that would be the anthracnose or the powdery mildew that is on those leaves. But you also have to have the environment that causes or allows the disease to thrive. When you take the leaves off the plant and put them in your property, or especially if you're going to whip them up, cut them up, as Fred was talking about, you know, you the the environment the environment for powder, powdery mildew is fairly specific. It's temperatures in the low 60s and humidity. I forget what 30 percent. Yeah, uh, about 30 percent. You're not going to get that yeah. in a pile on your on the floor of your garden. Same with anthracnose, a very specific environment. So you haven't completed the disease triangle. So there is zero evidence that bringing diseased wood chips or leaves into your yard unless you lay them right under the plant and you know yeah. touch up to the plant will caught will transmit disease there have yeah. been experiments done but to date there is zero evidence trying to think of what trees we might have you know ubiquitous around here crepe myrtles yeah powdery crepe mildew myrtles, crepe myrtles sure. olives olives oh no. <laughs> I'm allergic to them. <laughs> I took my antihistamine this morning as well, and I'll take it again tonight. Yeah, I'm very allergic. I, so I, we'll I, take I, questions if you want to come up here and ask. And by the way, Janice, since you were the first to ask a question, I'll do this as long as the supply holds out. I have for you the 2022 Sacramento County Master Gardener Garden Guide and Calendar. Thank you. 
ask a question. Yeah, just ask it. Okay, here we go. Hi. Hi. Quick question. Now we're all propagating for the plant sale for uh-huh. the garden club. And I've got like little seedlings of tomatoes, but I was thinking of trying to do a few more because mine are looking a little peaked and so on. Anyway, long story short, I heard your podcast. I know what a podcast Yay. is. I do subscribe to it and your newsletter. Oh. Um, but the question is, is that I chose the celebrity tomato because that was highly recommended for right. our area. Mm-hmm. It was iffy about the Cherokee purples, but they were my mother's favorite. So I'm going to give it a shot. And then, um, I've got a bunch of sun golds, little seedlings to go, but I'm thinking of some of the other ones that were recommended on the podcast, which I don't remember at the top of my head, but I have it in my notes. That's right. And they're in the newsletter too. Oh, oh, good. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So are we too late to try to get some in before no, no, April? No. It's real, winter. It's still winter. And we have a really long growing season. Yeah. But when you start those tomatoes, you need to give them a few things. When, once they're up out of the ground, extremely strong light. If they're indoors, I am not well versed in LED lights, but there are LED uh lights that work, or you just use two fluorescent tubes, a warm one and a cool one, but they need to be within two inches of the top of the plant. Very strong, and they need to be new bulbs, not the ones that have been in the garage for ages, been used in the garage. If they're unused, that's okay. The other is movement, wind. Yes. A a fan or the original experiment had graduate students shaking a table for ten minutes a day. (laughs) But uh, just like we have to lift weights or whatever to uh, or do push-ups to create uh, muscle. Plants have to move to create what's called reaction tissue. So I have a fan across the room because I have it indoors. I have the grow lights. I have the little shelves. Good. And then I Great. a friend of mine just said, you need to get them like three inches to the light. You need them very close to the light. Getting yellow. Right. So if you're gonna, if you don't have a grow light yet and you're considering one, you need to find one that can move. Both sides can move independently. I have a greenhouse now, but when I last grew seedlings indoors, I hung eye bolts in the ceiling. I hung the lights. It was a fluorescent, at least a two tube. It might have been a four tube fluorescent on chains. And then I could adjust the chains on the two different sides and the light could go up or down as as the plants grew and I could move them around. But it has to be very close. That's another lab we did with uh, light meters. Uh, Good light meters are hundreds of dollars, so it's not something you're going to own necessarily. But I had the students measure the light right here and then right below it. Difference was incredible. Up at the fluorescent light, a foot below dropped by tens of, uh, of, of numbers down on the desk. We need 50 foot candles to read a plant to a plant that's a cave. But to Ta-da. go back to your question, you get a calendar because you asked a question. Thank you. All right. I think, yeah, I'm telling you folks. More. Ask some questions. To answer your question more directly about when to plant tomato seeds, you could start tomato seeds anytime from mid to late February to mid to late May and still develop a crop because we have a long growing season we that do. goes through November. If you're timing it for a plant sale at school, we use nine weeks for almost anything we started from seed. And thank you for subscribing to the newsletter, too, the Garden Basics newsletter available on Substack. There's a link at FarmerFred.com. <laughs> Hi there. 
Hi there. I don't know if other people have been trying any of the uh, meal kits that uh, come to your home, but I've been trying those, and they come with gel packs, and they say that they are non-toxic, water-soluble gel packs. Um, I know there used to be little beads that would absorb water that you could put in your soil to help uh, maintain um, moisture in your pots and that kind of stuff, and I'm wondering if those gel packs could be um, incorporated into the soil to help hold water for uh, especially pots. Is this why your name tag is backwards and I can't see your name? Because somebody (laughs) has been emailing me that question a lot. They're very worried. Okay, It it wasn't you, Julie. Okay. I know, and I did some research on this, Mm -hmm. and I can't find any place in the, from the manufacturer of those gel packs that it's safe to use in soil. Or from scientific experiment from by horticulturists that's been asked. There's a if you don't know about it, there's gardenprofessors.org, I think. They're on Facebook, the garden um, professors. They've discussed it as well and nobody has a conclusion. Yeah, so if you want to experiment yourself, I'd start in a container. Do something that if it dies, you're okay with that. And, and do it there and see what happens. And then maybe do get a little soil test kit, test your pH, test your nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. Those are typically the things that you can test in a homeowner soil test kit. See what happens to your soil. Do it before, then add the stuff. Do it afterwards, see what happens. And is it registered as a soil additive? Probably not. They'd have to be submitted to the state of California for testing. There used to be a garden radio host in Sacramento many, many years ago by the name of Pete Strasser. And Pete Strasser was a plant pathologist who worked for Capital Nursery. Remember Capital Nursery? All right. Well, Pete's go-to answer when anybody would bring up a question that involved using some typical household product in the garden, he would say, is that on the label? Uh, on that carton of milk, does it say you can apply it around your roses? No, I don't think it does. And basically, that's right. If you don't see directions on how to use it in your garden, it's not meant for the garden. And one of the big products where you don't see that label that you shouldn't be using in your garden is vinegar. Vinegar can be quite toxic to you and your plants. And there is vinegar labeled for use um, in the garden, but it is so acidic that it probably has a danger label. Pesticides are labeled caution warning danger. Uh, category three is caution two is warning one is danger. It goes three, two, one, cat will die. That's how I remember. Uh, caution warning danger. I use mnemonics all the time. I can't remember anything unless I use a mnemonic. Anyway, danger is the highest level and you typically, you well, you should always wear eye protection gloves, long sleeves. Socks, shoes, long pants, but you can really hurt yourself with a danger pesticide. Kitchen vinegar is 4% acetic acid. Horticultural vinegar is 20% acetic acid. And there will be warnings on there about basically putting on a hazmat suit Mm -hmm. if you're going to be using it. And the thing with vinegar as a weed killer, it's only a top kill. The rest of the plant is going to sprout back from the roots. So it's just going to give, it's going to give you quick results, but it's not Complete. Not long-lasting. Yeah, it, it's just not worth it. And how about questions? Wait, oh, there uh, we go. Oh, hey, don't go Bryce. away too far. Julie. Julie, get back here. You get a <laughs> Master Gardener calendar for 2022 with great garden tips, courtesy of the Sacramento County Master Gardeners. Hi, I'm from Southern California, right near the Los Angeles County Arboretum. Yes. And I have a compost bin, which is great, but I have the larger grubs in there. And I just leave them in there. They compost Mm -hmm. great. 
they yeah. sieve the compost so that I don't have them in my soil. Yeah. The only thing is, is the animals like them. You know, the ra- raccoons and skunks think so. So do they get, they, your compost is a, an open compost? Yeah, an open So they compost. get in. Yeah, but the, they just dig it up. And right, I so put I was going to say, what would the danger of that be? Yeah. Right. But your leaf idea, I, I do the same thing with the arborists and get all the mulch oh, yeah. put it in my garden. It's great. I've done it for years. By the way, bribing the uh, arborist with a six-pack of beer helps, too, oh, if yeah. you want that little no, they don't have to put. they don't have to put stuff in the landfill. Right. It saves so them it money. It saves them money. Yeah. They just dump it in my yard. But the guy, my tree trimmer, gives me clean. You know, he makes sure it's not good. a disease. Yeah. Tree, so it's that's... Good. But I have a lot of citrus trees, mm-hmm. quite a few, and, the, you know, they're ever-dropping leaves. Can I, I leave it there. I used to take it away. Now I leave the leaves there. Is that okay? I mean, I made the trees are doing great. I would chop them up first and make them Oh, smaller. I do. I chop everything with my lawnmower. Okay. All right. Because they are a rather thick leaf. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And just make sure that they don't build up around the trunk no, of the plant. Right, right. Because and I, then my apple tree is also, um, I leave, I just decided to leave the leaves there. So I'm if sure. the apple itself is not diseased. No, this, yeah. That's the one case where if it's right under the plant, it has spores of whatever. Right, whatever it is. Yeah, okay. can get up into Especially the coddling moth. Splashing, uh, yes, if it has that yeah. as well, yeah. Yeah, okay, thank yeah. you. Yeah, good luck with that. Oh, you get a, Renee, this calendar will work down in Arcadia, too. <laughs> so it's a, Enjoy that. Hi there. Hi. Uh, I have a question about something totally different from that we've been discussing. <laughs> I have some Nandinas that spread Mm-hmm. How can I kill them? You can't. Just move. Oh. That's, that's, that's the only way. I've taken, I, the house I bought had Nandina all up oh. my very long driveway and across the, the property. And I've taken to going out about now and cutting the fruit off <laughs> and collecting it in a bucket and putting it in the green waste can. So that it doesn't end up in, in, cause I have babies showing up everywhere, yeah. Are you digging it up? Well, yes. Because I've even put the vinegar, the, the real strong well, vinegar yeah, on it, yeah. and it it just keeps coming up. When you have a, sh- a shrub in particular, and Nandina is a shrub, even though it's a very flexible one, also called heavenly bamboo. Yeah, yes. and and yeah. it is a woody plant, even though it you know it acts more like bamboo, which is actually a grass. You cut it off. This is really a two person job. You need brush killer. I have one of those little pink basins they give you in the hospital, and I put the brush killer in it in a Some of the brush killers come with their own little plastic top that acts as a a dish. And then I have uh, some kind of small paintbrush. And my knee pad's on, (laughs) my gloves on, and my husband with me. And one of us cuts the stem close to the ground. The other one paints it immediately with the brush killer. Cut, paint, cut, paint, cut, paint. That It actually works. It works on ivy. It works on uh, privet. Uh, and the reason you have to go immediately is plants create chemical barriers yeah. when they are wounded so that things don't get into them. So it, they haven't had the time yet to create the chemical barrier. When so you cut paint. When you say brush killer, what's the active yeah. ingredient? What is this? Oh, I don't know off the top it's of my head. It's not glyphosate. No, it's not. No, it's okay. not glyphosate. Glyphosate is the active ingredient in Roundup. Yeah. This is... Uh, Specifically for woody plants, brush killer is, and it will be labeled brush killer. Any any particular brand that you can think of? No, some of them are just called brush killer. Yeah, okay. yeah. Just Monterey right. shop for brush but, killer. Okay. In the instructions for applying glyphosate in much the same manner of cutting it off and then painting directly, there are instructions in the full Roundup 
instruction booklet, which is like 64 pages long. And you can find it online about how to do it for the most effect. I was wondering about uh, removing ivy. And I actually I had a friend, I recommended this to a friend, and he did it this way. Yeah. And I, I actually and called worked. up the people at the time. Dow owned Roundup. Uh-huh. And I said, well, how do you do that? And they said, take a metal rake mm. to the ivy leaves, because they have that waxy coating, and then immediately after going over it with the metal tines of the rake, you could apply the Roundup. Or, and the active ingredient so Roundup, again, is the glyphosate. That is the same thing. No, Roundup and Breast Killer are two different things. Yeah. And the things we're telling you are on the label. The yeah. label is the law. Yeah. If you do something else with that chemical, you are breaking the law. Yeah. Now, is somebody going to come get you? Probably not. Not unless you're a licensed pesticide applicator doing it for pay. That is something to look for. The, the Using the brush killer 100%, painting it on a stump like that is labeled, okay. uh, is written on the label. Okay. Thank and you. As is his so, method of IV control. Somewhere with glyphosate. in my brain, and I know we're both searching for the name of that. <clears throat> I want to say dimeth. Who's got their phone out? <laughs> it's brush killer label. Yeah, yeah. basically, when you do brush killer, it, the active ingredient will be different from glyphosate, and it's much stronger. Yes, yes. And it's it's how I killed off uh, liquid amber sprouts that came up after I removed 14 liquid amber trees. And my property's been empty for, <clears throat> been unoccupied for two years. We bought our house from a bank, and there were all these privets. Everything else had died, of course, because it wasn't getting irrigated. All these privets. My husband and I spent a day going around cut, paint, cut, paint, cut, paint, and it works wonderfully. Nina, come here and get your... Uh, Triclopur. Triclopur. Triclopur, yeah. Triclopur. Thank you. Yes. T-R-I-C-L-O-P-Y-R. P-Y-R. P-Y-R. Yeah, is the active ingredient. You'll find that in a lot of brush-killing products. So, you know, pesticides have an active ingredient listed on the label. It, there's a, always an active ingredient table on the label, and it will say what chemical is in it and at what percent. Then it will have inert ingredients, and all of that will add up to 100%. And there, it should say on the pesticide label, for use on woody plants, to kill woody plants in landscapes or something like that, a general statement of use. They, by law, labels have to have that on them. And remember, too, that you cannot free fall from that label as far as figuring out and assume that, oh, well, if this uh, weed killer will kill this, it'll kill that. No, the weed that you're trying to kill or the plant you're trying to kill with an herbicide has to be listed on the label. Read and follow all label directions, as we're fond of saying. Yes, go ahead. We have time for maybe two more questions. Real quick. Uh, I think crabgrass in my lawn is one of the happiest grasses that grows. <laughs> and I don't know how to get rid of it. You know, I've tried many things, Roundup, of course, and, and other products specific for crabgrass, but... It doesn't care. It just keeps growing. Is this a perennial crabgrass, or does it resprout every year? Well, you know, it dies down in the winter, and okay. then there it comes, right. and away it goes. This is the time of the year, early March, for applying a pre-emergent to control one type of crabgrass. One type. Which is an annual. Yeah. It grows from seed. So you, whenever this, another mnemonic, you want to get your weeds before it sets seed. What was that? Bis, B-I-S-S. Before it sets seed. Okay, if you we want. need to positively identify the type of crabgrass you have. I wonder if it might be Bermuda. Is there any chance it's very happy no, Bermuda? It's a, it's, a, it's a thicker leaf. Mm -hmm. it's thin, and, and it's a clump. Real, 
It's a clump. Okay. Yeah. And, it's it has, not and then it's, it'll send out seed shoots that have little seeds on That's, them. That's, you know, if you get that far, cut it off before, yeah. before they fly for sure. Yeah. But yeah, pre-emergent would be your control. And, um, when my fescue lawn was, which my husband insisted we start from seed, the first couple of years, Around this time of year, I, I didn't use pre-emergence as such. I didn't go and buy a chemical. I bought chicken manure, compost bag dried chicken manure, and laid that. And that, you know, it's one of the principles of mulch. Seeds have a fully formed plant inside of them and enough food to get that, the, to germinate, get the roots down, get the baby plant up in the sunshine, and then it runs out of seed food and it has to make its own food. If you put on a layer of mulch thick enough, and with the chicken manure, I'm talking probably half inch to an inch, mm. uh, the seed will germinate. It'll put down its roots. The baby plant will come up, but it won't have enough food to get through that half inch to inch. Oh. And so you're fertilizing the lawn with organic matter and the nitrogen that's in chicken manure. Um, pick it up in a pickup truck if you can or drive with the windows down. My car stunk <laughs> for weeks after that. But um, very convenient. Comes in a bag. Spread it on the lawn. And that helped prevent the weeds in my lawn. We're delving into a scenic bypass we don't have time for, which is soil solarization and sheet mulching, right. which are also effective ways of controlling crabgrass. Invite us back sometime. We'll talk about it. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank Beth, get a calendar. Here you go from the Master Gardeners. Hi. Hi. When you first started, you you introduced Debbie as Debbie Flower, and I was like, huh, is that a nickname? No, I'm not it's familiar my real with name. Debbie Flower, so I looked you up. <laughs> oh, boy, what'd you find out? My record's not that bad. I mean, it's, it wasn't that bad. So <laughs> it, it claimed that you're a professor at ARC? I was, was yeah. I'm retired were? now. You're retired now? Okay. So I am curious about your last name, how lucky you are to be in this profession with the last it, name of Flower. It's my real name. Uh, you could also look up Frank M. Flower and Sons Shellfish Farmers. In Oyster Bay, New York, that was the family business. My, I never changed my name when I got married. Uh, I already had my bachelor's degree, but it was also the 80s when people didn't change their names when they got married. And got to say, in this industry, it's memorable. People, <laughs> people don't forget me. It works for good or bad. It works. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> She's real. She has dirty. Don't go away. You get a calendar. Appreciate it. All right, one more, and then. We got to eat or something. All right, <laughs> Debbie, I used to work with you at ARC. Oh wow! Yeah. Where did you work? I was assistant for Robin Neal in administration. Oh okay. Um, but she would put together with her class. They would arrange flowers, and two days a week we could go buy their flower mm-hmm. arrangements. And mm-hmm. I'd always get my Thanksgiving centerpiece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we. Um, they, they were great. Horticulture was a very active department. We had three acres of land. We had tons of equipment. We had a floral arrangement program. you got to buy flowers for that, right? So our very dedicated floral instructors would go to the wholesalers and buy the the, the day-olds that they couldn't sell to uh, the commercial floral arrangers. But they lasted, man. Those yeah, arrangements yeah. were beautiful, and they lasted because the students were taught really, really well. That was the beauty of the AR horticulture department was they taught the students practical knowledgeable skills about being in the actual real world when it came to horticulture, uh, down to what sort of truck you should buy if you're going to be doing mow and blow. When I, I got my master's at um, UC Davis, and I took a full quarter, it's a quarter school, a full quarter in irrigation 
I could calculate pressures and pipe sizes <laughs> and head. I could place head emitters. I came across my final exam when I was cleaning the house recently, and and that's what it, it was a. That's what it was. But I came home and dug up my irrigation system at home to see what was actually under there. So, because <laughs> well, we never put pipes together, you know, we that, didn't we didn't attach things. Which that's the beauty of a community college. You're going to actually attach things. I like what you said a couple of weeks ago on the podcast that somebody asked you, oh, you're a professional. I bet you never kill plants. <laughs> oh, no, I kill. <laughs> this is my cousin's wife said, I kill plants. I just know how to do the autopsy. <laughs> Thank you for uh, coming out today. We appreciate it. Early February is rose pruning time here in USDA Zone 9. In other colder rose growing zones, though, late February through mid-March is best for rose pruning. In this Friday's Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter, we cover the basics of successful rose pruning in order for your rose bushes to put on a show-stopping bloom this spring. And in the podcast portion of the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter, we get helpful rose pruning ideas from a master rosarian, including the best fabric of clothing to be wearing when pruning among those sharp prickles. For current newsletter subscribers, look for the Winter is Rose Pruning Time newsletter. It's in your email, probably waiting for you now. Or you can start a subscription. It's free. Find the link in today's show notes or sign up at the newsletter link at our homepage, GardenBasics.net. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast comes out once a week on Fridays. Plus, the newsletter podcast that comes with the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter continues, and that will also be released on Fridays. Both are free, and they're brought to you by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. The Garden Basics podcast is available wherever podcasts are handed out, and that includes our homepage, GardenBasics.net. And that's where you can also sign up for the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter and podcast. That's Garden Basics. Basics.net, or you can use the links in today's show notes. And thank you so much for listening.